Hey there, and welcome to Upfront, a podcast that features conversations with Connecticut-based top performers who represent the very best in their field and how they are making an impact in their industry and here at home in Connecticut. Thanks for listening. If you go to his website, you're greeted by a big jovial smile and a simple, inspiring message we should all live by. Work hard, be nice, eat well. Chef Tyler Anderson was born and raised in Southern California where he started his career in the professional kitchen. In fact, it really started when he was a child selling snow cones on the street he lived on. Today, that entrepreneurial spirit lives on and his passion for the craft and locale are evident in his cooking style, which is inspired by simple quality goods in the culinary traditions of New England. He's the driving force behind his popular restaurants Millwright's, Takiu, Terreno, Bar Pina, and Tanda Hospitality. He's also been nominated for the James Beard Best Chef Northeast Award seven years in a row, named Connecticut Chef of the Year, and he was a fierce contestant on Top Chef, Chopped, and Beat Bobby Flay. So who won? We'll have to find out as we dive into what kind of leader it takes to run a kitchen, his daily habits and routines, what inspires him, and how COVID has forced the restaurant business to be innovative. Let's get up front with Chef Tyler Anderson. Tyler Anderson, the man behind Millwrights, Tanda Hospitality, Taku. Pina, Toronto, a whole bunch of stuff going on in your world. Welcome to Upfront. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so first question I always ask of every guest, um, and, I'll, and I'll have to uh, clarify. Physically, where are you at this moment in time? Physically, I am in Hartford, Connecticut, inside the Goodwin Hotel, where Terreno is. Okay, historic property right in downtown. Um, for those of you who haven't been you know, to the Goodwin, um, just beautiful, beautiful hotel. And it's undergone like a crazy renovation, right? That's all like modern boutique Yeah, we opened two years before COVID. So um, it, obviously it's been a little, it's been a little quiet since then. But yes, we, we the, the renovation finished about a year and a half, two years before COVID in. Yep. Okay. Um, okay. So let's go way back before we get to today. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern California. All right. Yes. Oh. Yeah. A little bit different than uh, the weather out here. <laughs> yes. And where specifically? Was it like La Jolla, San Diego, uh, so LA? I, I lived in the Long Beach area for a while, Orange County, um, and San Luis Obispo. My parents met in San Luis Obispo. I was born in San Luis Obispo. So I was born in Central, and then I moved south. What was life like uh, growing up there? Uh, I mean, you know, as you can, as you can imagine, my days were a little different than they are now. Um, lots of beach, lots of outside activity. Um, you know, we weren't inside at all. You know, I wasn't allowed to watch TV. There was like, you know, my parents were, well, you don't know, but my parents were sort of, you know, the religious hippies, I guess, in a way, in a good way, in a good way yeah. relationship. Uh, but there was, it was a lot of outside time. So it was eat well and be outside. And that's hard. Yeah. I mean, if you were a child of the seventies or eighties, that's what it was like. 
you know, parents were like, get outside. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and then Atari. I'm back when the lights go on. Yeah. And then Atari came along and changed all of that. Um, you know, what were your childhood aspirations? Did you always want to be in the kitchen? And the, and the reason I asked that is, I, you know, I read somewhere that one of your first uh, entrepreneurial gigs was selling snow cones at six years old. Yeah. And I got in trouble for that because I was selling snow cones to the neighborhood kids. And then I thought it would be a good idea. I needed to raise some capital fast because I needed to expand my operation. So I started selling season passes to the snow cone stand. And the other parents didn't like that their kids were, were buying futures in my snow cone <laughs> business <laughs> that may not have been, uh, you know, may, may not have been in existence uh, anymore. So, you know, that one got shut down pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, I've always sort of been into that. I, I've always loved restaurants when I was actually my Skype picture that I just pulled up was for some reason when I was, well, I know why, but in, when I was 10, you know, most boys were dressing like G.I. Joe for Halloween and I was Julia Child. So uh, uh, <laughs> and the first full, full drag and everything, 10 years old. So, oh, there you go. Yeah. You know, she was like one of the first celebrity chefs, if you could say that, right? She was on TV. Uh, she's, she's one of the reasons we eat how we eat in this country now. She brought, yeah. She brought the idea of fresh food to the United States. Snow cone venture, um, growing up in Southern California. Any brothers or, sis or sisters? Yeah, I have a sister. Okay. Older, younger? Younger sister. Younger sister. Yep. Okay. So, so you're, you're the oldest child. All the hopes and dreams first kind of like lie, lie with you. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. A lot of responsibility, you know, carrying on the name. Yeah, yeah, for sure. How about, uh, you know, what was your school life like? Did you play sports growing up? Yeah, I was always into sports. I played a lot of, I played baseball a lot. Baseball's huge mm. in California. Um, I was on the surf team. Some people think that that's funny out here, but, you know, we had surf team. We had a skateboard team um, in my school uh, and wrestling. Those were sort of my things. Baseball, wrestling, and surfing were my favorite things. You got that competitive spirit for sure, which we'll we'll talk about later. But um, what's the one thing maybe you you've taken from sports and applied it to the kitchen life? Uh, I mean, I, I I often ask when I'm interviewing people if they've participated in sports, just because running a restaurant kitchen in the back or in the front of the house is is definitely like being a part of a team. So it's good when people you know have that uh, have had that experience in the past for sure. Usually bodes well for their future in the business. Yeah, it's like you know who all the players are and what your responsibility is, and you know there's a certain am amount of reliance. I uh, I did work in a kitchen. I did dishwashing and then worked my way up to like a, a line cook. So I know the the pressure and the, the the reliance you have on everyone in the kitchen to keep things moving. You do. Yeah. Um, how about your parents? What did what you know? You said they were like um, religious hippies. What they do for work? So. My mom was a homemaker my entire adult life, or my, my entire, uh, at, like, throughout my childhood. Yep. And my dad was a, my dad was a grocery store clerk um, for a long time, and then he went back to school when I was, like, six years old, around the time, I think, around the time that I got busted with the snow cone thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he went back to school, and he became an aerospace engineer. Um, and then, you know, we sort of he did better from there, you know? So he was a, actually he was a welding engineer and then he became an aerospace engineer. Um, and then my mom became a school teacher once I was sort of at an age where she, she didn't need to be at home with us anymore. 
Yeah, my mom was a school teacher too. She um she did it so she could have the same schedule as us kids, right? You know, the vacations, the summers, that kind of thing. Um interesting. And what what kind of values would you say your parents instilled in you that you still carry with you today? Um my dad definitely instilled hard work. My dad and my mom uh instilled hard work and sort of the two things that three things I think that they instilled in me the most is like honesty, hard work and if you don't like your situation change it, don't cry about it. Um mm. so they were hippie religious hippies but also at the same time pretty tough um in that you know I didn't come from a very emotional household. If if I didn't like how things were then it was up to me to change my situation. Yep. Uh, and for better or for worse, that's sort of the way I look at the world now. I don't think that that's always the way to handle things, but it's worked for me so far, so I'm not going to change. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there have been some conversations between my wife and I about being a little less robotic and a little more emotionally available. Growing up in Southern California, you know, you're playing all these sports and then the question becomes, Okay, now what? You're graduating high school. Um, I know you went off to Chicago to uh, Lake Cordon Bleu Culinary and Hospital or and Hospitality School in Chicago. Um, great foodie town. Is that was that your springboard right after high school, or did you what what did you do after? Did you have your eyes set on college, or did you go right to that school? I never had my eyes set on college. I was never I was never a very good student. I was always the uh, I was always sort of you know, the, the one with potential, right? There was, I just didn't, I don't like sitting in classrooms. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't going to be for me. When I was in high school, I had this job at the steakhouse called the hungry hunter. And my job was to put the, I would garnish with the kale. I would put the cocktail sauce on the shrimp. I would do what's called expediting. So I would yep. stand at the pass where all the cooks sent the food and I would put them on trays for the server. And then I would send the server to whatever table they went to. And what's funny is like full circle, that kind of is what in a, in a sort of like fancy restaurant like mine, that's sort of what a chef's job becomes. So I went from becoming an expert, from being an expediter at the Hungry Hunter to eventually being an expediter at my own restaurant. Uh, but I, I didn't really look at it, you know, I was like 16 years old or whatever. I didn't really look at it as a real job. I looked mm -hmm. at it as, you know, a way for my mom not to be upset with me, like, you know, I was, ha I had a job. So, yeah. uh, and also I liked the pretty waitresses and I liked not having to be up early for work because I did it after school. So I found myself liking restaurants more and more and more. And I went from being the expediter and then there was this cook Tex and Tex, Tex was the cook on the appetizer station and all the cooks I like looked up to. There was Tex, there was uh, this guy Juan, and then there was this guy Numberto. And Numberto would be in and out of prison all the time. And But when he was there, he was like, he was the grill guy. And he used to like, I, I would just watch him grill all the meats with his bare hands. And I thought he was the toughest person to ever live. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so one day, Tex ran off to Louisiana to go cook. And I was called upon by the chef to work the hot app station. Um, and so my station became, that was the place with, that we would do the stuffed mushrooms and the potato skins. And I just like fell in love with the cooking thing. Um, I didn't know that it would be a career at that, mo at that moment. I just knew that I liked the rush. I liked the camaraderie. I liked the pretty waitresses. And I liked the not having to wake up early. Yeah. Yeah, the restaurant business is, is exciting too, right? Like the who's who of, you know, 
people in town come in, you see people and you meet all sorts of different kinds of people. I remember when I worked at a, maybe you know this place, my first restaurant gig was the Venetian in Torrington, Connecticut. I do, I do. It's legendary. Legendary local Italian restaurant that's still around to this day. And my job was dishwashing, right? And and I did a little bit of like salad prep and things like that, but um, primarily dishwashing. And, you know, the owner, um, I'm not talking bad about him, but he was a slave driver. He was just tough. But what I what I loved was people would come in through the back of the kitchen sometimes, you know, it was almost like Goodfellas or something, but it was like, you know, the mayor would come through or somebody else would come through and say hi, or it was just always this um, exciting environment. So I could see how, you know, people fall in love with it, you know, either, either you love it or you hate it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't think there are many people in the middle. Uh, It can be exciting, but you know, like honestly, in the back of the house, a lot of times we're not even aware of what's happening in the front. Um, it's it's just more the rush of the service, right? And getting through. I also spent a little bit of time in the dish area, uh, and you know, the hardest and most respected job in the kitchen, I would say, is definitely the dish area. If you yeah. don't have the people there, then your whole operation sinks. So we like to show them a lot of love, and it's not so much in the dish area. You're not feeling the flow of like like a cook feels the flow of like a good service with cooking in dish area. You're just getting pummeled all the time. Um, and so you're embracing those moments when the mayor walks by and says hi to you. Whereas if you're a cook and you're focused on what you're doing, you wouldn't even notice that person was in the kitchen. True. True. How do you end up in Chicago? When do you make the decision to go to uh, school to get some formal training? Well, I mean, I sort of, I cooked, I cooked, I cooked. I did a, I did some other things. I, you know, Futzed around. I did what people who don't go to school do when they have a couple down years. Um, I delivered for Pizza Hut. I did a couple other things. Pizza Hut is actually the the first job, the only job I've ever been fired from. Um, mm. I was really poor and I got fired because I was taking like a wing out of the wing orders. And oh the, the GM pulled me aside and said like, he feels like it's got to be more, at this point, it's got to be more than just a coincidence that there aren't any as many wings as there should be. But we moved past that. Um, and I decided to take cooking more seriously. And so moved to Chicago to cook and I moved to Chicago to cook at a couple of great restaurants that are in Chicago and also to go to school. You graduate from there. What happens? You work didn't in graduate. Chicago? I didn't. Uh? Graduate. No. Okay. I, I still have to do my internship. So if you know anybody looking for a good culinary intern, let me know. Um, but school was not for me again. Um, I think that, I think that, uh, culinary school is good for some people and it's good for some people and where they want to go in the future. If you want to be a restaurant chef and have your own restaurant, it's not the right route, especially for me. You learn much more on the job. At the time I was working at one of the best restaurants in the city and in the world. And so, you know, I, the value of the school seemed to pale in comparison to my job and my job was a 14 hour a day job. So it was tough to make both work. So I did not graduate. How do you end up here in Connecticut? So I worked in Chicago for about eight years and then I got a job working for a hotel company. I had me, myself and my ex-wife had my son and I was making, I think I was making at this the, the thing about cooking back in these days and probably still the same today is the nicer the restaurant, the less money you make. 
Um, mm. But I've looked at like, you know, a resume builder. And so I think I was making $85 a day was what I was making. And that was definitely wasn't enough to support a family. So I got a job working for hotels. Okay. Um, and so I got a job at this place called the Equinox that's in Manchester, Vermont and moved. We all moved there and I fell in love with hotels. I really liked, I, hotels are still like my number two favorite thing to restaurants. Um, but I sort of became the corporate chef for this company and I traveled all over the country, um, helping fix their messed up restaurants, which was not an awesome job because I like to be the good guy, not the bad guy. And at one point we said enough travel enough is enough. Let's, let's find some place to live that we want to stay. And we both had liked our experience in Vermont. I wanted to be near the ocean because I like the ocean. And mm-hmm. so we found a small inn hiring in, in Iverton, Connecticut called the Copper Beach. Um, yep. And a lot of the hiring was being assisted by this legendary chef, Jacques Pepin. And that attracted me and the opportunity to sort of like have my own kitchen and not have like an HR department or a GM or all of these other people to report to um, that, that you have in a hotel was very attractive to me. So I took the job and here we are. 14 years later or something like that, maybe 15 years later, still here. Well, we love that you're here. You've received some serious nominations and awards, right? Including Top Connecticut Chef. Um, You've been nominated a bunch of times for the prestigious James Beard Award for Northeast Chef, I believe, a few times. Um, But I want to talk a little bit about Chopped and and Top Chef. Which came first? Which which one one of those came first for you? I've been on three major shows. Chopped came first. And then there was the show Beat Bobby Flay and then Top Chef. Okay. Out of, of the three, which one did you like the best? Definitely, well, definitely Top Chef. I like the experience the best. Mm-hmm. The one I liked the best was Chop because I won. But the, <laughs> the experience on Top Chef was great. Did you beat Bobby Flay? I, I didn't see the episode. No, I got robbed. I, listen, it was, a, it was a split decision. It was a two-decision yeah. Um you watch the episode and tell me what you think. Okay, I will. I ran into him in Jada uh, two summers ago in in Italy. I think they were over there filming a show, and we just happened to be out for some drinks on a rooftop bar in Rome. And my girlfriend says, "I think that looks like Jada over <laughs> there com- coming in." And I look, and then I looked and I said, "Yeah, I do think it's her." And then I go, "Wait!" Now they're kind of sitting behind us at a table and. And as soon as I heard Bobby's, you know, accent, you know, talking, yeah. yeah, I was like, ah, we're having a great day. And, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> anyways, so, I mean, all of this kind of ties into back to your sports thing and, and the competitive question. Are, I mean, I think I know the answer. You're a competitive person, right? Yeah, very loosely, though. I mean, it's like um, I want to be the best, but I don't like lose. I want to be the best, but I, I feel like I don't, I don't, I also want other people to, you know, like Mm. I'm competitive in a very friendly way. Like I want everyone to be better. Um, if that makes any sense. So it makes it hard to be competitive when you care about what uh, that other people, you know, like when you, you see that somebody else is doing well and you genuinely are happy for that person. Um, yeah. So in a way, yes, but in a way, like, I, I just think 
I think I suck all the time. Like Gordon Ramsay says this thing. Gordon Ramsay says that he's never put a dish out that he didn't think was perfect. I'm the absolute. I'm the opposite. I don't ever think I put out a dish that's perfect. So whether maybe I'm competitive with myself, I don't know what it is, but um, I am competitive to some level, but not in the traditional sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting that he says that like, you know, putting out a dish that is, is perfect. I mean, I don't know. It's like the question about wine, right? What's the best wine? Well, it's the, it's the wine you enjoy, right? For some people. Right. <laughs> um, but, never like Exactly. And I've never looked at a dish and been like, oh my gosh, that was, that is, per-. I've been like, oh, that's pretty damn good. But I've never been like, oh, that's flawless. You know? Like, yeah. Right. I just, right. I'm not like that. So there's yeah. always I, something that could be better. Yeah, no, for sure. But you know, that, that had to be pretty exciting. Um, you know, chopped top chef. I mean, there's, there's so many cooking show or, you know, shows on food today. I mean, you know, when you go back to like, earlier in our conversation, you know, Julia Childs and then, um, you know, and then you have like Emeril Lagasse who did his show and Jacques Pepin. And what do you think our fascination is with watching people, you know, in the kitchen? I don't know. Uh, I don't know, but you know, as you've mentioned, it's relatively new to us. Mm. Right. So it's a good, I mean, it's a great thing because it's, it's really pushed American cuisine, uh, in a positive direction. You know, when it pre Julia Child, like everything we ate was like a hammer out of a can. Um, <laughs> lot, like everything was preserved, everything was powdered, everything was about convenience, especially coming after World War II. I mean, that obviously makes sense that we had to eat that way um, in some in some senses. But if you look at like the cultures of many, many other countries, like let's just take two easy ones, France and Italy, you know, they've cared about the quality of their raw ingredients for so long. And so yeah. you go to one of those places and you go to a market and you're like, holy shit, this is the best looking strawberry I've ever seen in my life. Um, whereas you go to Whole Foods here and you're going to find good strawberries, you know, but we haven't had that. We haven't spent like, like hundreds or thousands of years focused on the quality of a raw product like some of these other countries have or other places have. And I mean, maybe we owe that to some of our, um, you know, British background, but uh, <laughs> we're never... Uh, crazy about their their raw goods, but it's it's great to see Americans caring more about what they're putting in their body, caring more about the quality of the things they're buying, um, and being more uh, being more critical when it comes to like what they're eating and what they're putting in their body generally. Yeah, I mean, I love that about summertime here in Connecticut. You know, the farmers markets and and all these things that are I think are gaining way more traction than they were like twenty even thirty years ago. Um, you know, I remember traveling to Italy, um, what was it, summer of 2000, so that's 22 years ago, my God, and, you know, I was younger, and I remember at the time going into the, you know, we had to go get food for dinner, so I went with, um, you know, my ex-girlfriend's grandfather, and he said, we're going to go to the butcher to get meat, and I said, okay, and then he goes, no, now we have to go over here and get vegetables, and now we have to go over here and get this. And I was so blown away at that age that like, wait, we're not going to like a super stop and shop. You know, it it was like he was explaining to me like the the importance of like local food and supporting the ecosystem. And I don't know. I I have hopes that we as Americans are getting there. It seems like we are. I think we are. I think we are. 
I want to learn more about you as a person, the choices, the things you do that make you who you are. Take us through your daily routine. Are you an early morning person or are you best that you're, you know, I know the restaurant business has crazy hours, but what's your typical day like? So I'm not a routine person and I'm trying to get better at that. Uh, but I've always disliked routine. I'm like constantly doing new things and it's, it infuriates. Well, it can frustrate people around me, certainly. And it, it could even frustrate myself. Uh, but I do have kids and I am up early. Um, my daughter is six. And so normally I'm awake and, you know, taking a crack at the day at like 7.30, 7 or 7.30. Um, news, morning, work by, on the computer for work by 9.30 or 10. Um, into a restaurant or into meetings at that time. Uh, you know, there are a lot more meetings in my life than there ever have been. And, you know, Millwrights is open. Well, you don't know, but Millwrights is open five days a week now. So it's not every day that I'm there at night, but I'm there and we have a very good team in place. So I'm usually, uh, I'm usually home by like 10 o'clock at night um, and bed by about two or three and then back at it like seven. I don't really sleep much. I sleep on my day off. I'll sleep like, I'm like a camel I'll store sleep, I think. Um, <laughs> but as the week goes on, right? So Monday is usually a day off. And then as the week goes on, I sleep less and less and less and less and less until like Saturday night where there's a lot of times where I just don't, won't sleep on a Saturday night just cause it's like our busiest night and blah, 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 blah. Um, and then I use Sunday as a day to like recoup. Yeah. So yeah, that's as close to a schedule as I get, really. Um, I don't, and you know, I vary. It, vary, it varies. It's all okay, over. but no special routines like um, you know meditation or no. morning nothing like that. Okay, do better at that. You know, I'm trying to like because I think it would help me with balance. Uh, but you know, I've been writing my Peloton every day, which I think is is a good thing. So there's Peloton in the morning. Um, but I'm trying to put together like a full routine for the morning so that I start that way all the time. And I just like hopefully work into more organization. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty organized person, but I'm surrounded. I surround myself with people who are a lot more organized than me, my wife, my business partner, my, the people who work with me, you know, it's important that they're very organized because I'm definitely more of a scatterbrained sort of creative minded person than I am order, but I want order. I want like, I'm the kind of person who like loves and embraces perfectly clean places. I love them so much, but I'm not capable of doing it myself a lot of times. And so then it becomes like, you know, like I'm trying to figure out how to get better at that, how to, how to uh, walk the walk as well as talk to talk. Yeah. It's not easy. I'm the same way. I try to, you know, I've got a hydro, which is like the rowing thing. And, you know, I, I, I try to hit that first thing, but there are days I don't. So <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying to get into that, that, that flow as well. My thing has become, don't, don't pick up your phone until you did the Peloton. There you go. And if I, I feel a little, I feel a lot better about myself moving forward. And I've heard that hydro thing's pretty cool. Definitely is because 20 minutes doesn't seem like a lot, but you do it. And it's an incredible cardio workout that, that works out a whole bunch of muscles and stuff too. But that's a good point you brought up the cell phone. 
you know, don't look at that because, you know, if you, if you look at that, the first thing you, you know, if you wake up, you look at your cell phone, you're checking emails right away, you're setting yourself up like to the demands of other people, right? It's like now all of a sudden you don't, you don't even have any me time. You're in the shower getting ready or whatever it is. And you're thinking about, I got to get back to that person and I got to make sure this is happening. And so, um, good advice. Or when you, or when you, you know, you pick up that phone and like, okay, if you're like me, you don't really have to be at work until noon most days. You know, mm. that's when I really have to be at work. I should be at work at noon, depending on what like my day looks like as far as meetings. But like you could fall in this pit of like wasted social media time. It's yep. just laying in bed, looking at social media. And then all of a sudden two hours has passed. And it's like, what the hell am I doing with myself? You know, so <laughs> get the hell out of the bed, get you know, do Peloton and then, you know, start looking at emails and other things. And I've, I've been trying to avoid social media like as much as possible because I'm just over the whole thing. But, you know, it's a necessary evil at this point. Yeah. I, well, I would say that you're pretty good at it. The stuff you post, especially on Instagram, is is good. You know, kind of gives a, a peek into your life or your world. It's all honest. You know, it's all authentic. Yeah, that's good. Right. You don't want to, you know, sometimes you see these people who have such staged social media, even in the food world, you see it and it's like, oh, come on. Where do you find inspiration for for either just life in general or, or for the kitchen? Like, where do you where do you find your inspiration? I like finding I like finding inspiration from travel. I mean, that hasn't been the best thing lately, but normally I'm traveling quite a bit. I'm going to Argentina tomorrow, actually, so that'll be awesome. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Raw product, like going to a farmer's market, you know, going to a farm. I live in Simsbury. We have a lot of farms around us. Yeah. And all year long, I know, you know, I know most of the farmers around, so I'll show up and look at things and just be like standing in the field looking at a piece of squash thinking about what I could do like a weirdo. Um, I love going to farmers markets, farms, things like that. Like seeing what's around me and cooking with that is my biggest inspiration. And then, you know, when you're in the kitchen, do you ever, I mean, there definitely is like a science behind food, right? Certain things don't belong together, but oftentimes what you don't think might work could work, right? So is there a lot of experimentation in your world? Like you get that squash you've been staring at in the, in the field and you're like, okay, this is what I'm going to do to it. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, a very high percentage of times when you eat, like, a dish that I've put out, it could be, a, it's probably a dish that I haven't done before. Because mm. I, you know, like, I'm, a, I guess I'm amassing this, like, this list or book or what, whatever of greatest hits. But I, I don't like, I don't like repeating myself over and over. I like to push and, like, do new things. So we're always messing up, you know, like hopefully we catch the error before it gets to a guest. Um, and that's, you know, that's the idea. Like I'm not just making up a dish and then we're putting it on a plate and then it goes to a guest without trying it. But we've certainly like made some things that were like, you know, that's not very good or, you know, like <laughs> or that's surprisingly good. So, yeah, it's always there's always like messing with things. You know, something I'm curious about, and I think maybe you'll be a good source for this. Connecticut, I think, doesn't have any michelin star restaurants is should we have them or is that something you want or who cares um i'm almost to the age where who cares but michelin doesn't come to connecticut because 
there's not enough. There, there aren't enough. Okay, so for Michelin to 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 grade an area costs a lot of money. So there okay. needs to be a high density of restaurants within a certain amount of space to make it valuable for Michelin to go do it because their inspectors are well paid and they go to a restaurant a lot more than just one time. Um, so, you know, if you think about how many people it takes to, to go out and do this and to, and to grade all of these restaurants and make sure you didn't miss any, and then to keep going back to the ones that they think would make it, um, you know, there's a lot of cost associated with that. So a place like California, for instance, Michelin used to come to California and then they stopped because obviously California is huge and it was cost prohibitive for them to be spread out trying to, and, and it's very important for Michelin to also, you know, keep their standard up. Um, and so California um, have, has paid to have Michelin come and grade California restaurants because there's so much tourism involved in, in you know, people coming from outside to come visit those restaurants with the Michelin stars. Honestly, I don't think Connecticut would have many Michelin star restaurants. Mm. Just as I think not a lot of places outside of major cities would have either. Like there would be a scattered place here and there. Um, I think on my best day that Millwrights maybe would get one, maybe, but I don't know. Um, but I would, I would love one, and, but I'm starting to care less about that kind of thing. Yeah. No, that's helpful. I, it's kind of a personal question too. I was just always curious why, or, you know, how that works. So thanks for, thanks for explaining that. Um, what would you say your leadership style is like? So we talked to a lot of CEOs and corporate people on the show as well, but, and creative people like yourself. So I'm curious what your leadership style is like. Right. So, so, you know, mine has to be a blend of like, you know, there's, there's a creative, I, I guess there are a lot of like leaders who have to have a blend of creativity and leadership skills. So it's about trying to get people to buy into a vision um, and, and doing it in a non-manipulative way where, you know, restaurant people are very cut and dry. There's a lot, like they've seen a lot of BS. And so you're not going to like, you're not going to BS them into anything. So they have to really believe in you in order to come along for the ride. And I think that's a lot of it. A lot of it too is a huge part of what I do is find people who are good at what they do and just let them do it, you know, uh, because there's, if, if you're, if you're micromanaging in this business, then you're going to um, probably not end up on the happy side of, of, of your life. Um, because there's so much that can go wrong, right? So if I'm sitting in the kitchen looking at every like chive to make sure like every single chive is cut the right way, I'm probably not seeing my children or my wife, and you know I'm probably not the happiest person in the world. But so the key is to find people to um, buy into the vision and find people who are good at what they do and let them do what they do. Yeah. Back to your sports experience, right? Put the team together. Yeah. <laughs> but as a leader of you know, all of these restaurant groups and, 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 um, your hospitality business, what, what would you say the greatest challenge is? I mean, right now, the greatest challenge is just bodies to begin with. Um, but I would say over, like in the, in this, in the normal scheme of things, the, the greatest challenge is to try to find people who like it even halfway as much as I do, um, mm. who are, 
who appreciate what we're doing half as much as me. Uh, because there are a lot of people who in the business who are there to collect a, pay, a paycheck, and that's 100% uh, understandable. Um, I like to be around people who are in it for a little bit more than that. Um, and I'm not saying everyone I employ is not in it for the paycheck. They certainly are, and they certainly should be. Um, but I think that there's an opportunity within this business to create something special and to make people happy. And why a lot of us do it is because we like to make people happy and we like to have uh, that, you know, that, that like quick response on that. Right. So it's like we do dinner, we see them smile. They say, thank you. They say they loved it. We're happy. They're happy. That's what a lot of us in this business like to do. And finding people whose goal is to make people happy is not an easy job. Yeah. Interesting. What does food mean to you? Right. Or what has it taught you in life? Well, I'm currently weighing in at about 270, so it has. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite things. Uh, I mean, I love it. Just I love being at a table with people I care about or want to be there with. I feel like uh, it's a great equalizer. Like sharing dinner with someone is a great equalizer. There's no better way for me. There's no better way to to learn something about someone than to have dinner with them. Um, it's my favorite thing to do. It's my hobby. I've eaten, I eat at so many restaurants. Um, and even at home, you know, like it's, it's, I don't know. I feel like there's something special about breaking bread with somebody that you can't even quantify. Um, and you're also trusting someone else to put something into your body, like to take something inside your body. And that, that is a, you know, that trust is a big deal. Yeah. It's interesting. We, throughout my career with um, marketing and public relations, we worked with Brugger's Bagels and they had their, well, his TV title was head chef, but, uh, but he was like the, the R&D guy who developed the menu for Brugger's. But when we were doing a lot of traveling around the country doing um, new market openings, we would go on the morning shows. And the thing I loved about traveling with him was we would be in places like Nashville or Huntsville, Alabama or, or wherever he would go into the kitchen of the hotel and, and level, you know, kind of chef to chef, like, hey, where am I going to eat tonight? Where should right. I eat? Yeah. My question to you is, and I think I have this book too, right? It's like, where do chefs eat or, or whatever it is. Um, what, what's your favorite place to eat in Connecticut, Hartford area or wherever? What are your like go-to restaurants or places? Uh, Brico's my favorite. Um, and... I always tell I always tell my staff we you know we we talk about like there's a difference between maybe the best restaurant and your favorite restaurant and our goal yep. in my restaurants is to be people's favorite. I would be rather be people's favorite restaurant than I would to be the best restaurant um, because I feel like that's when you've truly uh, you've truly related to someone um, and I think that I think that that restaurant Brico is is based on consistency and like it's consistently delicious. It's just a restaurant that you want in your neighborhood all the time. It used to be in my neighborhood and I kind of had to move away because I developed a problem with it. Um, <laughs> but, but I've been going there, you know, like if you go there on a Monday, you'll see a bunch of chefs there uh, because number one, there aren't a lot of places that are open on a Monday. And okay. let me also 
there are a lot of other restaurants around that I think are delicious and great. I like Osa in Middletown. I like Grano, Grano Arso in Chester. I like Present Company in Terrapville. I love Cora Cora. I love Shoe Restaurant. You know, there, there's I could go on and on. Zohara is awesome. Um, and I'm pro- and Zephyr's Pizza is delicious. There's so much good pizza. There's so many good places to eat. But my favorite is Rico. There you go. The Grants. They've been... They're like an institution in the in the food restaurant business around here. They are. Okay. Billy, Billy, quintessential chef. Yeah, for sure. You've done a lot of great stuff. You've been on national TV shows or international TV shows. You travel around. You've got some incredible, you know, restaurants. But what what accomplishment are you most proud of? And and what what I mean by that is is there something throughout your career that's just been so rewarding it's made you feel incredibly good about who you are and what you do um i mean i don't know if this is answering the question but my favorite thing to see is to see people excel when they move on from us because of what they learn when they're with us um mm. i think mentorship is maybe my favorite thing if you would have caught me like six years ago it probably definitely would have been a james beard situation but i think like just watching where people go in the business once they've worked for us and left us. And when they call me back and they tell me how important their time was with us, you know, that to me is the most important thing. That's now that's inspiring, right? Propelling other people to fulfill their own dreams. So that that's a great answer. Um, okay. I don't know. I I'm sick of talking about COVID, but I, I have to ask because I want to bring it up because I mean, the one thing, and I just had it two weeks ago, which was oh. uh, a lot of fun, right? I avoided it for so long and then I got it and it was like, ah, they're saying it, it's an endemic. It's going to be a seasonal thing. We're going to have to learn to live with it. But I bring this up because, yeah, it, it has been challenging, but it's also sparked, I think it's sparked a lot of innovation, right? Kind of do or die situations, especially in, in the hospitality and restaurant businesses. Um, you've had like white table restaurants learning to be a takeout business all of a sudden um, to offering private dining experiences like in the the outdoor igloos and so on. But you had a really cool project that you did. I thought it, it was really unique. It was something so different that at the Goodwin Hotel, that was like a private room dining. What was, t- tell us about that. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what you're looking for, what you were looking for with COVID is space. So we were, you know, people say, oh, Tyler, you did such a good job pivoting or whatever. It's like, you know, I have a lot of friends in cities who have 30 seat restaurants who have no choice. They had no choice. There's nothing they can do. They're done. You know, like they're, they're closing or they're doing takeout or like, you know, whatever. We had space. So one of the things we sat down and talked about as a management group is, you know, what can we do with this space? So it's what we did with Millwrights the entire time. And then when it turned to how are we going to do the hotel, what do we have? Well, we have all these hotel rooms that aren't used. We have, if we can create, if we can create a safe way for people to have a good night out, then we literally have the monopoly on that business right now. Mm. Uh, And so we just worked with some other very creative people to create an entertainment experience within the unused hotel rooms of this hotel. And because of the look and the feel of the hotel, a lot of this was easy because obviously I'm not putting a $50,000 into like a budget to remodel things for this. Right. right. Uh, so the look was similar to what we needed it to be. And, 
you know, we have some people with us who has like some background in theater. And so we were able to together sort of put this together and, you know, we ended up having, it's not an escape room. And also, you know, there were, there were restaurants in hotels that were like using their rooms in their hotels as dining rooms. And I Mm -hmm. thought that was very smart, you know, like each one's a private dining room, but I also, you know, like I'm kind of like always bored a little bit. So it was like, how can we how can we make this room more interesting when people are in it? How does it not feel like a hotel room where you're having dinner in a hotel room? Um, and the idea was to build the story around it. Yeah, I thought it was super creative. And you're also doing like the Sunday dinners, you call them, right? Which is like cooking lessons with you. <laughs> That's something we did. That's something we did during COVID. We did it on Valentine's Day last year. And I think we did it on New Year's Day. Yeah. Um, so people pick up a, a kit of raw ingredients from Millwrights on the Thursday or the Friday or Friday or Saturday previous to the thing. And then on Sunday we cook together because people, people are always asking like, what do we cook at home? You know, what do chefs cook at home? What do we eat at home? Yeah. It's a way for you to see, you know, and we only do, I think we're doing only 30 of them, like 30 people at a time. So it could be pretty interactive, you know, and with, you know, these technologies, zoom and Skype or whatever, um, it's become easier for me to interact, you know, so yeah. people will cook along with me and at the end they have dinner. I, I think it's inspiring um, because again, innovation, right. Has come out of this. Are, are these things here to stay? Are you going to keep doing these types of things or is, or do you just want to get back to like quote unquote normal? I mean, I'm never normal. <laughs> so <laughs> it, like, you know, people, people, people will say like, Oh, you, you know, like if people say you've done a good job pivoting, like my life is a pivot. So it's, this is nothing new. Um, because everything's new because I'll get yeah. bored and then we'll do something else. You know, we're tending to the things that we always need to tend to, but at the yeah. same time, there's a way to push it in a way to like do something new. So there are slow times, there are ebbs and flows in the restaurant business, even when times are good. And so like during the, um, during the lower times of the business, You'll see me do create. You'll see us do creative things like this. We've also taken the loft in Millwrights, which is used for private dining room, and create and turned it into this thing called the workshop. So in France, a lot of chefs will they call them atelier. So atelier is like a workshop, and they'll make a smaller version of their restaurant so that they can work with like very select people, um, like small groups on um, new dishes, and that's sort of what we're doing. We're doing that right now too at Millwrights. So, uh, you know, um, private dining hasn't been like wonderful since COVID it's coming back definitely, but you know, to let this beautiful loft that we have at Millwrights just sit empty, um, didn't make any sense to me. So we're doing that, which will start coming to an end. Um, but you'll always see us doing interesting stuff. It keeps people interested in the restaurant. Um, it keeps us interested and for me, the biggest thing all the way through COVID is to keep my employees employed, um, keep the people we work with with us and don't lose good people along the way. And a lot of this has been because we want to keep people busy who work with us. Now, I applaud you and everyone in the restaurant business for, for keeping it together and, and, you know, helping out in the community, too. There was a lot of feeding first responders, things like that, but also taking care of your own. So um, hats off to you guys. If you could give your 18 or 21 year old self some advice, knowing what you know now, what would it be? 
focus, like, you know, focus more. <laughs> Don't be a jackass. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, just, you know, at that point, I didn't know that I liked cooking, but I didn't know that I loved cooking. And if I would have, if I would have really, really applied myself to it at that time, I think I would have made it ahead further and been a lot better than I even am, than I am right now. Not that I'm like great right now, but um, it would be focused on cooking and, and don't be a jackass. And if there's one thing you could change about the industry, what would it be? I would like to be able to pay employees more. I would like to be able to pay the people who work in restaurants more money. Um, there's a stat and I may be wrong. I may be a little wrong on this, but I'm not a lot wrong on this. So in the 1950s, uh, the average American household spent 22% of their household income on food and 5% on healthcare. We now spend 5% a year on food and 22% on healthcare. And I think that restaurants need to be able to raise their prices. Like if you take a rest, if you take a restaurant like Millwrights, which is not an expensive restaurant by any stretch, and I'm not saying it's a cheap restaurant, but we have raised our prices. We opened ten years ago. Our prices have raised an average of have raised six percent over that time, generally, right? So it's not it's not always apples to apples, but as a whole, it's only raised like six to ten percent over those ten years. So we're not even keeping up with the rate of inflation. And this is not just my restaurant. This is every restaurant. Um, there's too much competition in the restaurant business. We're all trying to undercut each other. We're all trying to do the happy hour, the half price wine, all of these other things. And who suffers as a result of that is the, is the average employee in a restaurant. Um, mm. restaurant people have been historically low paid and we need to find out a way to fix that because they deserve better. I echo that. And okay. So final question I listened to a podcast on NPR. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, Guy Raz, how I oh, built yeah. this. Yeah. And I really enjoy that. So, you know, hopefully it doesn't sue us, but I think this is a great question. So I'm, I'm borrowing it or okay. asking the same thing. Um, how much of your success has been pure luck and how much of it is from your sheer brilliance and skill? I would say that it's 50% luck and 50% hard work. Um, I don't think, I mean, I think I'm fairly intelligent, but I think it's, it's more like hard work and luck 50, 50 for sure. Um, I don't, you, you know, there's so many people who do this for a living. Like, why am I the guy who, who is in this position right now? Which, you know, I'm very happy with the position I'm in, but how do I become that person? You know, it's, there's so many people aiming for it and trying to do it and trying to have the, you know, you know, we were awarded best restaurant in Connecticut. There are a lot of people who are trying for that. Um, you know, it's luck. 50% of it. Yeah. Well, what, do that's a, what do you think well, about I, yourself? Me, myself, yeah. I, I would say, yeah, it's, it, it's that old saying, um, what is it? Preparation meets luck. So, you know, you got to be good at what you do. And then when opportunity presents itself or luck, right, falls into your lap, if you're prepared for it, then just, just go for it, dive right in. So I think I, I've gotten lucky with a lot of things, especially in our business. You know, we've, we've landed some amazing clients. Um, you know, I've worked with some really great people and, you know, 
sure, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of luck involved in that. Yeah. Um, but if you have the skill to to meet luck head on, you're going to do okay. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Any final words? No, just um, you know, restaurants are still going through it. There's still you know, there's a lot of recovery to be done from the aftermath of let's hope it what is the aftermath of all of this. So, you know, just keep supporting your local restaurants. The Connecticut Connecticut crowd has been awesome with with being very supportive. Um, there's not I don't think I, there's any restaurant owner I talk to who, who says that they haven't been amazingly supported by people in Connecticut during this time. You know, just know that that'll need to continue to happen. And, you know, there are deficits to make up for a lot of restaurants for time spent. Um, and, you know, be nice when you dine and tip well and support and we'll be there for you. And a huge one is if you ever have an issue with something that happens to you in a restaurant, try to contact the restaurant directly before posting on Yelp or Google or all of those things. 95 us really, really want to fix those problems and we will fix them to the best of our abilities. You'll definitely have a better, you'll have a better outcome that way too. Like I will buy, if you don't like your dinner at my restaurant, I will buy you dinners at my restaurant until you like it. Um, or until I can <laughs> just give up and give you your money back. Um, because that's how most of us are. Yeah. No, I, I am so glad you said that because if, if something's not right at a restaurant and all you do is sit there and complain to whoever you're dining with and I can't wait to get out of here and get on Yelp and give them a bad review. That that that's like hurtful, you know. It it really is. I mean, I, I just watched that movie Chef the other night, right? Yep. Where, you know, the reviewer is like heckling the chef, like, and it, it's like, and he has a fit about being heckled or given a bad review. But it's true, especially when it it comes down to something that could be so fixable. Right. Yep. So, yep. All right, Tyler. I think this is a great place to leave off. I want to thank you so much um, for spending time with us and thank you. you know this inspiring conversation. And if people want to follow you and all the things, Tyler Anderson, where can they find you? Instagram. Chef Tyler Anderson on Instagram. Yep. And there we have it. That's Chef Tyler Anderson on the show. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I sure did. And I'm inspired to get into the kitchen and make myself something good for dinner tonight. How about you? Now, if you'd like to learn more about him or make a reservation at one of his restaurants, please visit cheftyleranderson.com. You can also follow his life adventures on Instagram at cheftyleranderson. Upfront is brought to you by Mason, an integrated brand communications firm located in Southern Connecticut that provides communications ingenuity through advertising, public relations, social media, digital, and media services. To learn more, visit mason23.com or send us an email to hello at mason23.com. Thank you so much for listening. I hope to see you again soon. Take care.